Welcome to the end of 2020 Savage Minds podcast. I'm your host, Julian Vigo, and today's guest is Dr. Heather Brunskel-Evans, a Foucauldian scholar who teaches and researches the relationship between modern medicine, sex, and gender. Her latest book is Transgender Body Politics by Spinifex Press, published earlier this year. I welcome Heather to the show. Welcome, Heather. Last time you were with us, Heather, we talked about Foucault. And we said we would bracket Agamben for another time because George Agamben's work, even though applicable to Foucauldian ideals, especially since February and his writings this year, it deserves its own mm, space. So uh, welcome back to the show and tell me your thoughts about, you know, what's what you've read of Agamben and your thoughts about contagion. What does this mean for our society in a world where the media, the government, independent agencies are telling us to fear everyone and even droplets and movements of air? And on the other hand, we're being told, you know, solidarity, we all are in this together. But clearly, we're not all in this together because there are people who have lost their minds this year, living in extremely small spaces, having kids, no external help. I mean, you know the score. We've read the stories. We've seen the stories. Some of us have lived the stories. And this is a very, you know, class-inducing discussion that conveniently has been abdicated by governments and media. Everything but the obvious is being discussed all in the guise of getting us in gear to be fearful. Reminds me of another era, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it reminds me of all sorts of things. Um, before, before I talk about the significance of Agamben, and I think he really is significant, both um, in terms of his contribution to the debate about the coronavirus and also in people's responses to what he has said. So, but, you know, I'm aware that a lot of people listening to this won't have heard of Agamben. Um, he, to them, you know, he's an Italian philosopher and um, it, it may be for, for a lot of people, he won't be relevant. So what I would like to do, Julian, on this day, the last day of 2020, um, when I'm in reflexive mood, as I always am at this time of year, um, I'd like to think about how I, I would like to weave in some of my own experiences to what Agamben is saying to make to make him um, and the value of his thought more relevant to people, if that's OK for me to do that. Can you give a brief survey of who Agamben is for people outside of philosophy, yeah. especially who might not have heard of him? Okay. Agamben, as I said, is an Italian philosopher um, who for the past, I'm not quite sure how many years, a number of years now, he, 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 he's, he's approaching his 80s, I think. And throughout his adult um, academic life, he's been absolutely highly respected um, for his critical thinking about uh, government, biopolitics, the nature of um, the, the subject, political agency, and so on. So he's been utterly valued for his critical thought. Now, what is extraordinary, what's extraordinary is the very, the very ways in which he's been valued 
to the, the very critical analyses and concepts that he brings to thinking about our polit political and social world. He's done them with regard to the coronavirus. So he's behaving, at, it, it, he, he's behaving to type, to academic type. He's just brought his, what he's been respected for and applied them to the coronavirus. But at this moment in time, when he's applied them to the coronavirus and the way that we are being, um, he's responded to the number of um, you know, extraordinary measures that the government has brought to bear upon this uh, alleged epid epidemic. It's been so vilified and it's that juxtaposition of, of, um, of the value uh, which is uh, which he has had being turned completely upside down and now he's vilified and, and even by his own contemporaries with whom he's had a lot in common especially Jean-Luc Nancy yes absolutely so if we could say okay you know he's being trolled on social media and so on we've become so familiar with these stories now and hey so what um you know many of us are subjected to to this and it's part of life as we know it at the moment and we just have to get on with it the significant thing is that he is being vilified by his contemporaries by people who themselves are notorious for their or notable i mean for their critical thought so it's being turned upon by one's own community and the significance of that which i'd like to go into further if I may, but throughout the discussion. Sure. I wanted to just give listeners uh, three of his primary works. I think they're his best known works okay. in case people want to read him because I think people would really dig him. The Coming Community, Homo Sace or Sacer, depending on how you pronounce your Latin and The State of Exception, which they all actually come into play with what we're going to discuss today, frankly. And so um, have at it, Heather, um, continue, sorry. Okay, so um, with regard to into weaving um, Agamben's thought into the kinds of experiences I've had uh, in the past year and my own thinking about it, what Agamben does is he asks us to question the fear that we have of catching the virus. So, and, and the effects of the fear and how that fear leads us to police ourselves and to accept extraordinary government measures and so on. So I'd like to say something which has been very significant for me. And that is that I've had no fear of catching the virus. Now, I, I know this is- um, You've had no fear of the virus? None, none. Not a single fear of it. Um, I know what fear feels like. It's the clenching of the stomach that goes with certain things. I have had fear this year. I'd like to come back to that. But it's not fear of the virus. Um, you know, and I don't have an underlying health condition. That is true. So I know that by saying I have no fear of the virus, people might think that I'm just being flippant and... Um, unaware of the realities of the body and uh, disease and of death. So I would also like to say um, that I understand that people die. I truly understand that people die. Um, death has been very close up to me in my own personal life. 
uh, its consequences have reverberated throughout my life um, since my 30s, actually. Um, I can explain what that is, but perhaps it's not it's not particularly relevant. Other, yeah. Um, well, I would have to ask, you know, in a sense, I begin to wonder if our reflections on death are not directly related to personal and cultural experience of experiences of death. One example is that two days ago, I learned a dear family member died, and I called my family in India. And I already knew what to expect. I knew that there would be a, a sanity to it. There wouldn't be a lot of drama that I have to say tends to accompany death in the West. It's an observation, not necessarily negative or positive. <laughs> and I do realize that, you know, all my family in India, as they've approached this virus philosophically, there's been a lot of chuckles accompanying it, not because they, uh, impugn anyone to die or they wish anyone to suffer but because living in India there are bigger fish to fry right do you know I, I, thank you Julian yes absolutely and I do wonder whether my experiences my experiences are I think exceptional in the west um somewhat exceptional of course death uh, comes to everyone um but I, I wonder whether my experiences have in a sense separated me out from other people's responses I have perceived that so I will I will explain so in, in, in my 30s, um, my um, husband died of um, lung cancer. Um, I had small children at the time. And so, you know, I also, he didn't, I didn't, um, he didn't go into hospice. I completely looked after him myself and he actually um, died uh, in my arms. So I, I have a, a um, a familiarity with the dead body, as it were, intimate familiarity with holding the dead body of uh, a loved, dearly loved person. And um, of course, as a widow in my in my 30s, this put me into an extraordinary position. It was, I didn't have uh, in this, I'm talking of course all my experiences are western experiences i'm fully aware of that but given that i was a western woman i didn't have there weren't many people who had similar bereavements of a husband through death there were of course many older women who did but not women who were still vital and alive and living living um as, as a young person. And then um, I had um, my youngest son died of a fatal accident, something um, about 10 years after, it was 13 years actually after my husband had died. And I had to make the decision to uh, the life support machine that he was on. And I held my own son as he was dying. So this brings me back to the uh, uh, assertion that I'm making that death is not something that feels very far away from me. I'm not, when I say I'm not frightened of the virus, I'm not thinking um, this can't happen to me and, and um, uh, death is something that happens over there to those other people. So I can you know, feel confident that it's not going to happen to me. It's absolutely not coming from that place in me. It's coming from another place um, that is that I accept that 
I, and I think I've lived a full and um, quite intensely alive life. Um, so to, to, to say what it is that I am actually afraid of, but what has clenched my stomach as it were for the last year or so, um, is that um, obviously I don't want to die, but being physically alive and not being allowed to be fully alive, which is what the lockdown is bringing me, and which seems to be what, as a society, we're accepting, is far more of a horror to me. So, you know, for me to be alive is to use my brain, to be critically engaged, to share my thoughts with others, to discuss their thoughts and have others challenge mine. Uh, it's also to be the owner of my own flesh and blood, to touch the lives of others, to be touched by them, to hold them, all of those kinds of freedoms and agencies as they're being taken off me in very direct and sometimes less direct ways. And the ways that other people are seen to me, I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, many people seem to me to be so compliant. It's the fear of, it's that fear. It's the fear of what it's doing to our society in the future and the, the, the measures that the government is taking. It's the fear of the government's influence on my own personal life and it's the Um, the fear of not being able to share some of these thoughts with other people, and I'll come back to why, why I think that is the case, that is gripping me with a kind of, um, oh, I would call it real fear, actually. It can become quite paralyzing. I wonder what kind of world we are living in. And my fear is, I'm driven by, by ethics. You know? I'm, dri I'm driven by the fear of the way that we are losing sight of our humanity and, 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 and the, what the consequences are going to be for future generations. Well, absolutely. This actually makes me think a lot about what Agamben refers to as bare life when he talks about those subjects who are denied both political and legal representation. He specifies refugees, but this could be extended to political prisoners, victims of tortures, and the dispossessed. And the dispossessed includes people under lockdown. I mean, I'm quite shocked when I see people being unfriended on Facebook. Anyone who thinks this virus isn't real, get off my wall, get off my friends list. And I'm thinking, oh no, here we are again. We can't have a discussion about yet another topic because saying that I disagree with lockdown or this person doesn't see mitigation efforts as productive is not akin to saying that there is no virus. And, you know, saying that I don't think we need to lock down all of a society and instead focus on those who are at risk. I mean, I've been interviewing this, the declarants and the, the creators of the Great Barrington Declaration who have two of them, I haven't interviewed all three, but two of them have said to me, basically, that not only has mitigation made everything worse, in all likelihood, there are more deaths. So what is wrong with discussing this such that 
now it's off the table. It's verboten. You're persona non grata. You're, you know, now on the hated ex-friends Facebook block list or whatever. And we cannot talk about this. You know, it's the year of absolute blacklisting, call out, silencing. And on the other hand, where we most need it, because scientific debate is integral to any democracy, we can no longer have it. I mean, this is quite the paradox giving, given that Agamben's work on the way in which power <laughs> yes. is, is conceived and executed necessarily brings up human rights along with the human body. I advise anybody to actually read the Barrington Declaration along with um, your advice to, to, to read some of his actual work. But the Barrington Declaration, which, which uh, uh, as you said, is made up, or, you know, it's a declaration by people who, you know, are infectious disease epidemiologists and public health scientists. And they have great concern about the damaging physical and mental health impacts of um, the policy, governmental policies, and so on. So, and they have a different approach, which they recommend, which people should read by reading the Bounding Declaration. It's very easy to find on the web. But um, what... ...to something that also frightens me. Um, the stakes of critical thought have been raised so high that one has to defend oneself against the accusations um, that the kinds of ways that critical thought can lead to um, murder and death by um, our, our unawareness of the seriousness of the epidemic, which hard science apparently um, has demonstrated to us is one of the worst epidemics in the past hundred years for the amount of people that are, that are dying. I recommend, obviously, the whole, the whole basis upon which the narrative of, uh, the narrative which Agamben is problematizing is that science proves that um, this virus is so serious and is the worst e ep epidemic uh, that we have had over the past hundred years and is killing thousands and thousands of people. That narrative is the very narrative which is causing us to comply with extraordinary authoritarian governmental measures. Now, of course, the minute you start to, talk, to even begin to talk about this, people accuse you of being irrational, anti-science, uh, and so on and so forth. I'm going to relate this to another narrative that's going on in the culture um, about trans. I'm going to come back to that. But that is, uh, that is what is de being deployed at this very moment in time. The idea that to question science is to be irrational and illogical. And this is where the Barrington Declaration is so important and I do urge readers to read it. It's very easy um, to find. At gbdeclaration.org. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And, and, and it, the declaration is made up of the voices of, and I'm just going to read how they describe themselves. They describe 
themselves as infectious disease epidemiologists and public health scientists who have a grave concern about the damaging physical and mental health impacts of the prevailing um, COVID-19 policies. And they recommend an approach that they call focused protection. Now that focused protection is important. It's quite different to the kinds of protection that the government is offering. But I leave people to read for themselves what that focused protection is. The important thing for me to say here is that these uh, scientists who have a different voice to governmental scientists, as it were, from an extremely concerned ethical position. They're not um, irresponsible people who are unconcerned about the potency of this virus and the fact that it does cause death. They're talking about the unforeseen consequences of the governmental approach, and they're very concerned to find ways in which we develop herd immunity so the very people who need protecting actually are protected. So the important thing to understand about these scientists is that they're serious, they are scientists, and that they're ethically driven. Now, this gets me back to my point and my point of fear. My point of fear is that we can't discuss that. We can't discuss any alternative ways of being responsible about the COVID virus. The, the, the stakes of critical thought now have been raised so high that what we have to defend ourselves against is the accusation, and I think the uh, scientists of the um, Barrington Declaration have also faced this, as has Agamben, that what you're doing is recklessly killing people or helping kill people so that in fact the imputation is behind that that you're almost committing murder that is the moral universe in which one is positioned by having critical thought now the first time i, 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 I that this um what is happening now in my view is 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 something that has been building up for a long time i don't think that we can say this is particular to what is going on, the dynamics around the virus. Um, it's something that's embedded in our culture, uh, increasingly embedded in our culture and the way that we're governed, the way that we're governed through the idea of various truths with, which become established. Uh, we can't critique those, and if we do critique them, that we're silenced. So my experience of this before this past year was the very first time that I was told that I couldn't say anything, that I mustn't say anything, was in 2017, um, when, I, when I was very concerned about the medicalization of, um, uh, of children in an alleged attempt to help them change sex. Um, and um, the ad hominem attacks that came upon me for attempting to provide an alternative truth to the truth that medicalizing children, um, you know, that sterilizing children, in fact, um, 
was was a, 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 a derogation, an absolute abuse of children's rights, not something which was progressive. Um, that um, whatever one's position is about this, whatever it is, should have been heard as um, the the ethical concerns of somebody who was worried for children. In contrast, it was interpreted as somebody who would be driving children to suicide. This is the kind of language which was used about me and other people who are expressing um, um, a deep, deep moral obligation of to, to the society. So when society over the past number of years, over a range of different in, uh, issues, including transgenderism, has said, you can't say that, you mustn't say that. If you do that, what you're doing is, um, um, so, you know, my ethical concern for the bodies and psyches of children were that I was driving them to kill themselves. My ethical concern for the bodies of women and to create boundaries meant that I'm literally erasing the rights to life and existence of men who identify as women. So this, so Gombin and Foucault are actually very important here because what they both talk about is the way that our morality is now is centered on um, the body, the, um, the life of the body, almost separated out from the person. So the minute that any critical engagement happens, one is being, dis one is being accused of killing bodies. It, it's a very strange phenomenon, and it is now come, which uh, Gombin has analyzed, and it's now deeply embedded in the debates about the coronavirus. And, you know, now um, I will be interpreted by some as being negligent of the lives of little old ladies. I have that in inverted commas, by the way, because the little old ladies that people are attempting to protect are not little old ladies. They're very, you know, they're people <laughs> who have had a very lots of life experience and, um, uh, uh, and, and shouldn't be patronized in that way. So um, I'm concerned about these people. I'm concerned about older people. I'm concerned about people who have underlying health conditions. I just don't think that our approach is the best way of approaching that. So um, I'm going to come back to that, I hope, as well. But what's worried me is the way that people have been so compliant. Um, Agomben, for example, has been repeatedly framed as paranoid, uh, a theoretical fantasist, uh, too old. So <laughs> there's a lot of ageism creeping into all of this too, by the way. Um, a fermenter of conspiracy theories, irrational. Uh, but, you know, what's so concerning that these accusations are done so irrationally uh, without the accusers needing to <laughs> the, the accusers feel no need to argue why the opinions are so flawed. They just say the opinions are flawed and that whether it's to do with trans 
activism, uh, trans, um, transgenderism, whether it's to do with the coronavirus, that seems to be enough to make an accusation that, 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 that our arguments are flawed without any demonstration of why, other than ridiculous things of, you know, you're transphobic, you're a hater, you, you, you're negligent of the lives of little old ladies. This, we, we, our discourse has become so reductive and so cheap. It's very intellectual what's gone on because uh, I'll go back to the spring when Agamben addresses this. He had a series of essays that have been translated into English. I can post them in the description. Yeah. And I was really happy to read him because unlike you, I freaked out. I did. I've got two small children. I, uh, my wife was on the job market. All of a sudden, we're at home in a too small space with me having to do the hardest thing in the world to do around noise right. <laughs> and yeah. I was freaked out in the early weeks because the news was telling us one thing, two weeks later, we realized well, a little bit of hyperbole. And as the month went forward, we, we have another story to tell. And there are two coronavirus stories that I think over time will be the basis of what you know, many are calling ground zero now. Uh, this, this time in which the vast majority of people in ostensibly Western democracies have surrendered their freedoms. So what he does earlier this year in March, um, Agamben writes, George Agamben writes an essay where he criticizes what's going on. It's an essay from March 20th called Contagion, or Contagion, sorry. And George Agamben lays out the figure of the infector that was first immortalized in one of the great Italian novels of all time called The Betrothed. And he says about this in the essay, um, the Storia della Colonna Infame, he analyzes where the Milanese announcement was first published during the 1576 plague, which describes how citizens were invited to report on their neighbors, their fellow citizens. Agamben writes, even sadder than the curtailing of freedom implied by the measures, in my opinion, the degeneration of the relationships between men engendered by them, the other, whoever he may be, even a loved one, must not be approached or touched. And indeed, a distance must be put between us and him. According to some, this should be one meter, but according to the latest suggestions of the so-called experts, it should be 4.5 meters. Those 50 centimeters are interesting. Our, neighbor, uh, our neighborhood has been abolished. It is possible, given the ethical inconsistency of our political leaders, that these provisions may derive in the minds of those who took them from the same fear that they intend to provoke. But it is difficult not to think that the situation they end up creating is exactly that which our leaders have often tried to achieve, to finally close universities and schools and transfer all lessons online, to make sure we stop encountering each other and to speak about politics and culture, pushing us to the mere exchange of digital messages so that wherever possible, machines may replace every contact, every contagion, between human beings. Now, you know that people on the left who are saying lockdown, lockdown, 
are going to call this guy, you know, a a 5G conspiracist. Uh, Others are going to say he's just an outright conspiracy theorist. And I read this and thought, well, this reminds me of the lessons we were supposed to have learned back after 9-11. There are so many parallels, Heather, to the way that people were put into the state of shock and fear after those uh, various terror attacks happened. I was actually living in Italy at the time, so I didn't feel them close up as I would have had I been living in Brooklyn. But I called on my friends back home, couldn't get it through, the lines were gone. We were put into fear, CNN, Muslim threat, da, 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 da. Everything went down from that minute forward. And there was a un- unwritten contract that we were supposed to see, observe, watch, report in the very same way that we're being asked to do so now. We're supposed to fear other people. I know. Um, it's strange. I, I hear what you say about um, you were afraid at the beginning, and I, that made me reflect upon myself. And um, one of the consequences of, of, of all of this on me is that my immediate um, realization was that we were being manipulated. I didn't have that period at the beginning where I felt, um, you know, the the thing about this is, if you feel afraid of something, that what you will then do is feel protected by the government. You'll feel that the government is almost, you know, a a sort of parental figure that is taking care of you. I didn't have that uh, for for whatever reason. I could look at various other parts of my life and, and, and connected to a sort of defiance that I have. But my defiance was I will not be manipulated by this uh, fear mongering. It felt like fear mongering and I watched and waited. Of course, I wasn't, um, I complied. We were on lockdown. There was very little else to do than complied. But I complied <laughs> um, in a watchful waiting way as well, because you know I can, I can be wrong. But the, there was a way in which the language was up immediately in terms of war the virus is going to kill us we are all together in this we are going to fight the virus and um as good soldiers you will do what we tell you and then this 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 enemy will be defeated and i thought i'm not going along with this and so i watched the contradictory messages were there almost immediately the consequences of this were apparent almost immediately that this was going to affect children, lives, um, this generation forever, as it were, the lives of um, disadvantaged people, working class <laughs> people, mothers, and so on. It was there absolutely immediately, but we couldn't talk about this. It took a while. I was sort of holding my breath until various uh, um, uh, resistances <laughs> and different stories and narratives were being told. But to get back to what that made me feel in terms of the consequence of me, I felt not only was I separated, of course, and was living my life online like um, everyone else, but I felt separated from friends who I knew were responding differently to me. And I, I found that I would say unguarded things uh, and then be shocked, really shocked by people's reactions. Now, this taught me quite a lot, but I'll give you just a small example of the kinds of thing I'm talking about. 
in the spring in the UK and the first lockdown, it was absolutely gorgeous. The weather was beautiful, astonishingly beautiful. And as it happened, um, I was lucky in that um, I happened to be writing uh, a book at that time and was very concentrated on, uh, very focused on doing it. But in order to keep my focus, I would um, go for a run, which uh, twice a day, early in the morning uh, before I started work and late in the evening and as the nights were getting longer to um, process and um, relax after a day. And a friend phoned and I told her, she asked me how I was, and I told her that, you know, I go for a run in the morning and a run in the evening, and she said, but you're not allowed. Now, as it happens, I now live in the countryside and I'm surrounded by fields. And uh, when I go out, I wasn't going out irresponsibly. Um, I was running in areas where uh, I, I didn't meet a single soul. But the point that I'm trying to make is whether I met a single soul or not, my friend's response was that I was not obeying the rules. Boris had said that we were only allowed to exercise once a day and for a particular period. This is a little metaphor really. There are lots of incidents where I thought, I can't actually believe that people are complying, that people believe that in some sense, there is a sort of, um, the thought policeman is standing at the bottom of the lane. Oh, the, the, the actual policeman is standing there and, and I'm going to be, um, something terrible is going to befall me if I disobey the rules. I was disobeying the rules, I guess. I didn't feel like I was disobeying them, but I was disobeying them with all the responsibility and ethical concern, which I have, i.e. one is to keep myself sane because if I go down, there are various people in my family who might be severely affected if, if, I, um, if I myself become physically or mentally unwell. Um, I was writing something which I thought was a, a good contribution to the world. And I was and I was thinking very carefully about the kinds of society that was being produced. See, and so you can see that I myself am now defending the fact that I went twice for a run across the fields. Um, this, this, this way in which <laughs> like a gomben, I'm not comparing myself to him, but 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 like a gomben in the way that unexpected people turn on turn on one, as it were, has been one of one of the shocking experiences of of this time for me. But it it's taught me something, Julian, which I knew anyway. But I really understand it now. I really understand in a way that I couldn't have possibly. I was beginning to understand this since about 2017 how the authoritarian, authoritarian regimes get established bit by bit, bit by bit, and they take hold, not as Foucault would say, <laughs> thank you Foucault, you know, in a top-down fashion, although it works in a top-down fashion too, but in the way that, that it works from the ground up, that people end up complying, they end up accepting things that, you know, not too long ago, they wouldn't have accepted. They end up thinking that they're in the moral right 
for doing so. So this gives the, the impulse to go on doing it. Um, and they expel anyone to the margins who, who does not partake in the sort of group mentality. So in my view, um, going back to the Barrington Declaration scientists, where we would have needed herd immunity um, from the virus, because the virus is sure going to come back every time the lockdown ends, and we could go on for years and years and years. Um, when Agamben was, was uh, initially writing, that was the prospect. There wasn't the prospect of uh, vaccination at that point. Um, so instead of developing uh, illogical herd immunity to the virus, et cetera, what we've had, we, we, we've had um, a herd groupthink to which we're all being pulled into. And anybody who doesn't go along with that gets put into uh, along uh, to the margins, as I've just said, but also with this horrible um, uh, aura or um, the idea that you are contagious. So the, the, the metaphor of physical contagion gets attached to the critical person as a sort of moral contagion. So the, those innocent people, allegedly, the ones without the virus, the ones, the ones without any critical thought, <laughs> the ones who are complying, the obedient ones. And on the other side, there are the people with the virus who are contagious, you may have it, and you may not even know that you have it. Um, and you can pass it on, you can pass it on, you can pass it on. And they're morally contagious too, even if they don't have the virus, because they're questioning the alleged hard science, which the government is relying upon as if science, as if there was no dispute between scientists, which there is, which our media hardly gives any space for, in fact, to understand that. And so quite draconian measures are being employed, which we are getting used to. You're listening to Savage Minds. We hope you're enjoying the show please consider subscribing. We depend on listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Yes, and as we get used to them, what is the state of exception becomes the norm. We, uh, Agamben, at one point in May, he wrote an essay criticizing the Italian Ministry of Education talking about how now they're, you know, eagerly moving classes online through digital apparatuses. And they wish to recognize that biological data can be compulsorily, I'm quoting here, compulsorily collected and any gathering, whether for political reasons or for reasons of friendship, will continue to be prohibited. And he goes on to say, basically, what he, he's, he's advancing here is the idea that the destiny of human society is, booting, is being put under question from a mm -hmm. perspective that has been pulled completely, he says, from religion. And it's the apocalypse. And he's saying that politics, he says, 
After politics has been replaced by the economy, now the latter to be able to govern will have to be integrated with the new biosecurity paradigm yeah. to which all other needs will have to be sacrificed. Yeah. It is legitimate to ask whether such a society can still be defined as human or whether the loss of sensitive relationships, those of the face covered by masks, of friendship, of love can be truly compensated by an abstract and presumably entirely fictitious health security. Yeah. People are saying that this amounts to denialism. He's not denying there's a virus. As many people, including the signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration, I signed it myself, even though I'm not a medical expert, anyone can sign it, but um, there's well over 52,000 medical and scientific experts who've signed, by the way. But there is now evidence, even to someone who's only studied, let's say, high school uh, science, that we can see that this is not the bubonic plague, it's, it's not as contagious as they thought, and the people it affects are not just older people. You have to have age plus other comorbidities. Mm. And so Agamben's putting it to us all, asking yeah. us to think about what we're allowing to sacrifice because it's the idea that a person not only can be sacrificed but how and who allows for this sacrifice mm -hmm. and it makes me think a lot of there's this famous basilica in mexico city called the basilica de guadalupe where you walk to it but you're not walking alone you are surrounded by people on their knees kneeling, I don't know what the word is to walk with your knees, but they are walking on their knees towards the church. And there'll be competitive factors here because everyone is out to go to this church, but also to look rather in line because that's the tradition. You kneel to the church mm -hmm. so that your suffering is proven, including bloody knees. And mm -hmm. I do wonder if this is not just the cutting and pasting of a lot of religious observation in the contemporary era where you have largely left-leaning people pushing lockdowns, mm -hmm. but the same demographics are those who refuse religion. And yeah. we're now putting in the crosshairs of this. These are the same people, by the way, yeah. that you and I have dealt with yeah. on Twitter yeah. saying we're TERFs yeah. because we believe in human sexual dimorphism, a fact, FYI, not even a belief. Yeah. And so where science has become religious belief, because now one says, I believe that men are women. I believe that sex is not a real thing, but suddenly the coronavirus or this particular coronavirus is deadly. Yes. It's interesting how one set of science is is completely fictionalized. Yes. And then a fiction is rendered science. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so where does this leave us when we're, we're seeing, you know, again, talking about how we are being rendered faceless and socialist. We're not allowed to socialist, not list. And we're not allowed to socialize. We're not supposed to have any kind of human affection. To what degree are we dehumanizing our own societies? Well, you know, where does it leave us? Where does it leave us? It leaves us in the state where we have to resist this. 
our humanity in my view lies in our resistance because what is happening is so inhumane the very people that we're allegedly protecting for example old people are living desperate lives now alone without their loved ones in, in their bodies are being kept alive for what purpose are they being kept alive because they, they their bodies are separated from them as people they as people are deprived of social contact of physical touch of in, mental stimulation i mean it is to me it it is it is a an, ex an example of absolute cruelty. Um, so yes, and this does get us back to religion. I mean, the reason why life was so precious in the past was because we had a religious explanation for it. You know, people had souls and, and um, we were part of God and whether we were good or bad or not would dictate where we were going when our bodies uh, were shed. Um, we no longer believe in, in the soul um, it mostly, yeah, as some people do, but in the secular West, we're, we're, we largely don't. We're keeping people alive for what purpose? We've elevated life, this, the, the physical body, to something of life itself, what Agamemnon calls bare life, to, uh, to of such importance, and yet it's 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 completely devoid of life it's devoid of it's nothing but the biology <laughs> it is about so of course i'm going to relate it back to to what agamben calls biopolitics um but at a human level it's devoid of everything that makes us human everything and i'm calling that the capacity to think the capacity to love the capacity to share the capacity to create and transform one's life um, and conditions for the better. I mean, what, what else do we have in this secular age? But that, that is being taken from us. And so I think what is being created is a death, a deathliness. And little do we speak about the quality of life that all these people, the elderly included, are being afforded. And this concerns me because we are being given a mandate to be the walking dead. Yeah. You know, we're supposed to suffer for the possibility of another suffering. I swear, this is all the hallmarks of a religion. Yeah. And I, I grow concerned when I see the eagerness to which people are taking sides, instead of just reading calmly and saying, well, Agamemnon said this, and then, you know, Jean-Luc Nancy took Agamemnon to task after his first essay yeah. back in, I believe it was at the end of February. And, and Jean-Luc Nancy reminded us of something that most of us did not know, which was that 20 years ago, because they are friends, he asked Agamemnon if he, what he thought about his need to get a heart transplant. And he basically calls out Agamben. Jean-Luc Nancy writes this rebuttal in Antinomi, another Italian uh, journal. And he says, had I taken his advice, I wouldn't be here. Okay. <laughs> I mean, this, this is a non sequitur. It, it's, it's really proof of nothing. You, you ask a friend advice, a heart transplant has nothing to do with coronavirus. Mm -hmm. But that was allowed to pass as a rebuttal. Okay, mm -hmm. fair enough. And then there was little to no addressing the current gravity and horror, both in government and media that's been created around this virus. Mm -hmm. And who has been raising 
the questions within governments, both in the UK, the US, everywhere. What have they done since the spring when numbers went down to improve the, the care that the Great Barrington Declaration actually suggests? So do other experts, even experts who might be on the fence about lockdown. Yeah. Where was the targeted measures yeah. meant to aid many elderly in France and Italy and the UK? Where were all these people hired to be specialist delivery drivers to make sure the elderly got three square meals a day so that the family wouldn't put them at risk? Because, you know, that's a consideration. I saw nothing being done in the EU nor the US on this. Mm -hmm. uh, if anything, Taiwan, China, Singapore, they, you know, in Japan, they started using robots more and elderly care homes to bring mm -hmm. meals, and water. But I saw very little being done to advance this discussion beyond the state of emergency, the language of the state of emergency and of being the enemy. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it, it really telling to me that at the times where we needed a, a social and political diagnostician, we were given a gamben and then, you know, thankfully it was translated into English and other languages so people could have access, but that's it. Mm -hmm. Like we're seeing nobody, unless, you know, you ask Americans and they'll say Fox News is the other side of the story, you know, mm -hmm. or Sean Hannity. But the issues very much, if you listen to Jay Bhattacharya's discussion with me, he was brilliant because he's also saying, all of us are from the left, we're not political right-wingers, but the Guardian covered the Great Barrington Declaration as a cabal of right-wing funded yeah. nut jobs. Yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, that was just phenomenal. Yeah. So, and then the Guardian, oh, they had a great title saying, you know, that the Great Barrington Declaration was published oh here it is anti-lockdown advocate appears on radio show that has featured holocaust deniers yeah. now this is martin kuldorf who i also interviewed very rational and kind person not at all of the ilk of people who would deny the holocaust okay but this is where the guardian's coverage of the other side is a, a left-leaning publication i think they think themselves super left but that's debatable and this is the same publication that also does not give feminists the light of day in terms of the gender identity argument, right? It's turf, turf, turf. You know, they have more turf on there than full sentences by women. And, uh, you know, one can only wonder then what's in it for left-leaning media. I mean, I don't want to go towards conspiracy theory and think that there is a plan somewhere to have us all hold up indefinitely using uh, online money. Maybe this is the, the, the Bitcoin revolution, who knows? And that we're all supposed to be, you know, limited to our 280 stroke character tweets and that's it for life, then we die. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's that severe, but I do think that there has been a willful, willful snowboarding of our of our rights. We're supposed to be, you know, silenced until the science comes out. That was February. The science started coming out within a few weeks. And now we have so much more information that we know that focus protection that the Great Barrington Declaration advocates, you can call it what you wish, but basically safeguarding those at risk was the best way to go all along. Yeah. Now, wh why is it that the only coverage I can find from the Guardian on this is pure ad hominem, 
and or defamation yeah. and or, you know, derails, because I think an article talking about a talk show radio having a Holocaust denier in there is up there with, let's say, uh, anyone who took issue with many of the feminists who went to D.C. Yeah. Uh, almost two years ago now, uh, being told that, you know, people who go and sit in the Heritage Foundation audience are somehow part of a right wing. Yeah you know, cabal, yeah. which of course was untrue. Yeah. So I, I, this is weird to me to see that a world renowned, I mean, Agamben is not new. I've read Agamben since the 1990s. Yeah. Um, how is it that a world-class philosopher who had his finger on the pulse of the post 9-11 situation to the tune of he turned down a, a, a guest a visiting professorship, I believe at Duke University, because of the US's embrace of biotechnology just a month or two before then, where they asked for his retina patterns to be recorded and he refused. It was a beautiful piece he published on that. It was a, a short letter, beautiful letter. And now we are in this really paradoxical rinse and repeat of everything that happened post 9-11 in terms of I, uh, you know, uh, Al-Qaeda terrorism, a fiction, because obviously none of the hijackers were part of that, um, that we've now seen a virus increase day by day in terms of reach and mortality, but that his work on the nefarious implications of bare life and states of exception have been derided by Verso. I mean, I don't know if you read the piece by Verso. It's by Joseph Owen. It was published on 31 March, States of Emergency, Metaphors of Virus and COVID-19. And he, he takes issue with Agamben's position over the virus. Mm -hmm. And I, he's one of many who've criticized Agamben because people seem to think that, you know, Agamben was right once upon a time or even a broken clock is right twice a day type of mentality. But what no one's addressing in this is how we are being reduced to bear life all over again all over. through the use of the state of ex exception. Yeah, absolutely. So, Julian, we're just about to go into the year 2021. And um, I think you asked me earlier, what should we do? Or how, what am I going to do? I, I think that, again, as I say about critiquing transgender ideology, we must hold hands. Uh, across the globe as a whole, um, the West, and, and, and seek to, to hold on to the idea that we, if we want agency, if we want freedom, if we want security, the best thing, the best ways in which those things can be achieved is um, by people being critical, by being thoughtful, by being moral and not automatically accepting as we do, or even, um, you know, I, I, yes, automatically accepting that in some sense, although the government might be a bit wrong here and a bit wrong there, on the whole of what is happening is for our protection and our safety. Clearly something is going deeply deeply wrong here clearly there are, will be unintended consequences of this way into the future 
And clearly, we need to talk about it. We need to be able to speak about it without being castigated. Um, as but people are often very afraid, though. They say, well, my sister or my aunt died of coronavirus, as if that fact alone should mean we should all genuflect to the cross, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we're, we're also being threatened with, you know, you read in the media about these health passports. And I keep thinking of something Agamben said just last month where he says that health has replaced salvation. And he talks about how biological life has taken the form. It's taken over the place of the eternal life of the church. Yeah. So we really are in dangerous territories yeah. where... You know, uh, two months. Uh, you know, two years ago, our greatest concern was women's access to abortion. Now we're wondering if that information is not going to have to be always present and available to any authority asking for our health information, mm. which is daunting. Mm. Mm. Should we try to travel hopefully into the next year? <laughs> well, I would hope that we can approach these discussions legally. I'm, I'm very worried, yeah. not, not only for what's happening with governments clamping down on these kinds of discussions, but the way big tech, I mean, I've been covering big tech and politics in the US the last few months, but big tech has a hold over COVID reporting. Yeah. I have a piece coming out today, I'm editing. It, but I've been writing all about how, you know, Google, Facebook, Twitter, etc., have been canceling people posts yeah. that would discuss anything that we've just talked about. Yeah. And we have to really worry where we're having this, you know, again, the church of the Holy Trinity of Google, Facebook and Twitter yeah. is having often more power than the state, because yeah. when you're only... Like right now, you know, legally, people all over the world in many countries are not allowed to leave their houses. They've made all these lock time, lockdown restrictions for today even. And people's only escape from this, sadly, <laughs> is going to be the internet. And if they're not watching, you know, Meet Me in St. Louis, as we saw recently in my family, they might be on social media because they need that kind of stimulus mm-hmm. and discussion. When they are booted from that, that calls into question another issue of mental health. When you have big tech destroying our only psychological source from isolation, then we're talking, you know, Geneva yeah. Convention. I hate to, you know, I'm not being dramatic here either, but there are moments this year when I said to my wife, I said, oh my God, I think we'd have more rights if we were in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, do prisoners have to run around like, <laughs> are we allowed to go outside today? How many minutes of sun can we get? And, you know, I literally had to call the police today where I live and ask if it was okay that my children go out for a walk into a park because we get so nervous about all the threats made to give fines. So, yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be great if 2021 would engage a more openness of spirit for people to be able to discuss this virus, to discuss mitigation and freedom? But will this happen, Heather? Do you see this happening? Um, I'm not sure. Um, all I know is that... Um, well, there are two things. 
people sh should speak out since speaking out is the very thing that is not wanted for example people are wanting to to silence a gun burn means that the very thing that he should continue to do is speak out which i'm sure he will um and, and you and i um and and others like us i think what we need to do is continue to speak out as we're doing now now whether we will be allowed in the future to have these kind of conversations and for you to broadcast them on your website is a completely different thing maybe we will be silenced and that is a terrifying terrifying prospect so this this makes me think that you know we enough of us we need lots and lots of people to to speak out because of course not everybody is compliant i hope i haven't given the impression that everybody is going around like a sheep doing exactly what the government wants there's lots of dissent rumbling away underneath um but we need to be we need to articulate that and we need to do so um in ways that actually engage with uh, the science and evidence and what is evidence and, and 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 so on rather than just complaining about it i mean we must actually take responsibility to engage properly i think with with the arguments um um with the with the government rhetoric as it were um but yes i mean today at midnight tonight um the area that i live in in the uk is is being um accelerated up to tier four so by tomorrow um when i wake up i will wake up to lockdown again i mean almost complete lockdown there's nothing that will be open apart from food shops uh, so that i can eat um and uh i can say that on christmas eve uh, in the area in which i lived i'm not sure whether you're familiar with the different tier system but we were in tier two which meant that I and my family could go and sit in a restaurant and have a meal. This is probably seven, um, yes, it was, it was exactly a week ago. And um, at the end of Christmas day- we, In other words, you murdered people. Uh, that's right, we obviously <laughs> murdered people. We're obviously responsible for the fact that we've now gone into tier four. Yeah, definitely, absolutely, definitely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, isn't it shocking, Heather, that in all of these lockdowns, I mean, I went searching because of the piece I'm, I'm writing, uh, I went searching for information about updates as to protections for the poor people. Yeah, the renters of the world. Well, they got a great boost a couple of days ago. The U.S. government voted to extend prohibitions. I'm sorry, the New York state legislator voted to extend prohibitions against their being kicked out of their homes until the end of February. Yay. Isn't it phenomenal how class issues have been very much swept under the carpet Absolutely. this year? Absolutely. When are people going to rise up? You know, this is it's all the hallmarks of it's time for us to get off of our collective asses and push back. Yeah. Because the very people, Jay Bhattacharya told me this as well. We've created a class of people who are infectable and they're, and they're the, called the working class. Mm. And no one's spoken up for them. Instead, they get, you know, if they are included in that nightly applause at once upon a time for the healthcare workers, but, you know, they're more than just in the hospitals. And the working classes are the ones who are being told frontline workers, okay, but, you know, they're also being pushed into precarity. Mm -hmm. And 
no politician I've seen from any Western country has been taking this up seriously. I saw it once mentioned in Parliament. I forgot her name. She was an MP, though, uh, back in October or September, who mentioned about renters' rights. It went away. Yeah. So, you know, Heather, yeah. I mean, I'm very worried because we've we've seen all the hallmarks now of starvation beginning in the in in England, in the U.S. Food banks are running out of food. Like this is serious. And I've really, really tried to keep away from the uh, from 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 uh, a conspiracy theory about all of this. Mm -hmm. But I have to tell you that um, I have a friend who works in a volunteers in a food bank, and the people who officially run the food bank were told, I think it was November, I can't be quite sure, but it was um, a couple of months ago, mm -hmm. uh, that, that they had to, they were given um, quite a lot of money in this country. Um, I hope my facts are straight here, by the way. I think they are, um, by the government, um, which was unusual because the government doesn't really support food banks in that way. For the period between January and um, the end of March, beginning of April, so they were, they were, they knew they were going to get a substantial amount of money in preparation for a lockdown. So this, you know, I've just been watching bit by bit as incrementally the idea that we were going to go into another lockdown, which the UK is effectively going into tonight at midnight. Um, was it's not something new. Uh, it's not a new idea of the government. It's not to do with the fact that the virus is mutating as viruses do, um, always. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it was prepared for weeks and weeks ago. So, um, I mean, the lockdown. So, uh, you know, part of me now is thoroughly exhausted by it all. I want to say, do they think we're absolutely stupid? I mean, there are right. so many contradictions in all of this. So many contradictions. I've all in in the narratives that have been coming out. You know, the children are now going back to school, whereas at the first lockdown, they school at all. And of course, this caused this will have long-lasting effects on on working-class kids. That's the reality of it for the future. You know, they won't. You know, middle-class kids will will probably survive it and even possibly benefit from having lots of home tutoring from their well-educated parents um <laughs> so, um uh, sorry I've, I've lost my thread now um yeah and now children can go to school and uh, you know there are so many contradictions in it at first at first the contradictions frightened me a lot because for some reason I have this belief that and I still hold it I'm not quite sure why um, that those authorities should be should be operating on the basis of rationality, even if they sometimes get it wrong. That that should be that should be the foundation stone from which all the policies are emerging. But in fact, it's all been you know. On the one hand, it seems you know very organised and 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 planned out on the other hand it seems utterly chaotic to me and that it's being made up on the spot as as people go along um as the government goes along so um whether anybody would get all 
organized enough, probably not the government, to actually prevent us from talking to one another like this. I'm not sure. Probably they would. I do think there are dark forces actually going on. And the only way to defeat dark forces is by making everything as transparent as possible. I know no other way. I absolutely know other, no other way. And I, and I think that the least fearful that we can be, um, the better. Because as I said in another context recently, the thing to fear most is fear itself. So as we're being encouraged to fear and be frightened of one another and see the other person as a potential danger to us and our health, and the health of our loved ones, the more we need to actually resist that. And um, it's um, almost it's as if uh, people who have studied Foucault quite a bit in all this, because even Foucault spoke of the plague as a form of disorder and as a medical and political correlative discipline. Mm. In terms of how the, I think um, I'm trying to remember where he wrote this, but it's, he said it's a form at once real and imaginary. Yeah. And very much in line with what agamben has been saying. He talks about, you know, Defoe's um, and, and other literature on the plague where the models went in and out of being, you know, disease brought new death, the use or not use of masks was regulated. But there seemed to be a... Rep, an uh, ever representational mode of the plague where death and life is represented by the state. And I think we ought to really, I mean, I recommend people to read Foucault as well, Discipline and Punish, because the parallels between what happened during various plagues in the past and today it would serve as a springboard, I yeah. think, for better yeah. discussions too. But you know what is actually happening at the moment as well is that Foucault is being vilified too. At the very moment that we could use some of his concepts and analyses, he's being utterly trashed as being anti-science, um, you know, anti uh, the individual, anti human rights, and so on. I'm, I'm, I'm particularly thinking actually of a, a book that I'm reading, which is called. Um, critical slashed out cynical theories by um, Pluckrose and Lindsay, um, which it, it, it's, it's a they absolutely vilify Foucault. And it's such a shame because what they're contributing to um, in this book is the ways in which they, they, they want us to be uh, they're on the left and they want us to be resistant to dominant sets of ideology. They want us to critically think. But in doing so, they've done a demolition job as a demolition job is being attempted on, on the um, Gumban and, and his views of Foucault. And it is such a bizarre thing that's going on because both of these theorists have allowed us or have provided the conceptual tools with which to think our way through all of this. And yet it's those conceptual tools that we are being told, don't use them, don't use them. So we're being told from the left, don't use these tools. Well, absolutely, Heather. I mean, this is what we talked about over the trans issue with people are misinterpreting him, where Foucault said, I quote, the body is a biopolitical reality. Medicine is a biopolitical strategy that says it all. I mean, he was all about digging into these narratives to free 
keep the body, not to <laughs> enslave it. Exactly. And, and also that but by saying that, what he's not saying is that there is no such thing as science. He's not saying that. He's not, he's okay. not discounting all, all knowledge as being politicized. Of course, there's such a thing as science. It's the human sciences that he's concerned about. Just, just a brief journey back in the history of time demonstrates that medicine is very caught up always with the politics, the society, the ethics of any particular historical moment. And medicine is doing it all over again in relation to, to um, constructing sub the various subjectivities, the subjectivity of the innocent person going around wearing the mask, obeying the rules, keeping everybody safe, and all of those other horrid people on the other side who don't do that. So subjectivities are being created around all of this um, which Foucault would, you know, I use a Foucauldian analysis myself in order to understand it and to keep my insanity, to be quite frankly, because going back um, to the origins of how we began to feel at the beginning of the lockdown, um, that sense that I had of absolute dislocation in the kinds of subjectivity that I wanted to have, I wanted to have a resistant subjectivity in order to be fully a subject, in order to be fully free or as free as I possibly can be um, and so I, I guess um, without being conscious of it using the analysis that I you know that my background my academic life my professional life has steeped me in um, and it was um, it it was good. It it it, it was facilitating of me um, of of my mental health and physical health um, and emotional health. So the idea that Foucault, as Pluckrose and Lindsay call him, is just somebody who's cynically wanting to um, demolish liberal freedoms, um, undercut all science, um, say that everything's is utter, utter um, reductive and dangerous analysis of him actually. Um, and just one bit now that I'm onto this, um, is the idea that, that the body is socially constructed is completely wrong. Um, Foucault never said that and it was fully aware that human beings are a dimorphic species divided between females and males. Um, so he's, he's not much used to queer theory either. Although he get positioned as, as the arch queer theorist. But anyway, we're probably straying on to a wholly different discussion now, um, but they are connected. And this is um, in terms of my own personal life, I've been so aware of how, what's been going on with transgender ideology, what's going on with the orthodoxy of um, this epidemic being the worst epidemic that we've had for a hundred years, and the medical orthodoxies that go along with that, they're part of something much larger. So let's keep on thinking about them. That's the only, it's the only tool I have. I have no other tool. Um, you know, contrary to, to, to the ways that I'm sometimes framed, that's, you know, um, as, as a, um, you know, uh, a supporter of transgender trend, and then, you know, transgender trend is obviously funded by the right wing 
uh, Christian right from America, um, if only. Um, and, um, you know, there is no money. I have no money. I have no particular status in society and no particular ways in which I can change the, I have no power in government, but what I do have is the power to, to think and to help with others to change thought. And that's all I can offer. And that's what I go into the new year with. Well, I hear you. <laughs> I, I wish uh, we were not in the situation. Um, I've, I've been thinking a lot about Foucault's analysis since February. I wrote a piece, in fact, on, on Foucault and the, the plague masks. But he talks about the Serrade, the lockup, as it was called then, um, in the town's 17th century French towns that were hit by the plague. Mm. And he writes that this kind of permanent surveillance would be installed where each individual would be constantly located, examined, and distributed among the living beings, mm. the sick and the dead. Mm. In this way, he saw the plague-stricken town, it perversely became the utopia of the perfectly governed city. That last part was Foucault. The utopia of the perfectly governed city, he writes. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking about how governments and media have been successfully using fear to bottom up not just top down but bottom up survey us because now you have people who are calling on their neighbors you've got people worried about uh like me today can i go outside should i worry about killing all of my town if my kids play in a park this is really crazy i mean Foucault was writing about the 17th century this is 2021 we're practically at star trek level you know, be me up anywhere. I find there's something comforting about the fact that what is happening now is both new, um, of course, because history never repeats itself identically, but also that it is old and that what we're doing is, in fact, um, this is what human beings have done when we have, um, this is how government works in relation to uh, the body, uh, medicine, illness, uh, social control, and and so on and so forth. So none of that is new. We just have different technologies to carry them out. But the other thing that isn't new is shutting people up. I think of the witches that killed um, because they had a different way of understanding the world. And they had a different, um, yeah, there were women speaking differently. So uh, let's keep speaking. I think that's the thing to do. We've got to keep speaking until they decide that we're going to get into the witcher's stool and be drowned in one way or another, or we'll be, you know, have the cuckolds bridle around our mouths. I don't know. I'm being, I'm being, um, I don't, I'm not actually being flippant. I think. Well, no, it's it's all very uh, worrying to me because I thought that the the fear would. Det- decrease over time with more science instead it's been the exact opposite Mm -hmm. we've got the science in this isn't the plague it's not as deadly it's you know we know how to avoid transmitting this disease and how to safeguard Mm -hmm. the elderly Mm -hmm. and those most at risk and um just last month agamben wrote a poem have you read that love has been abolished no i haven't what a lovely yeah he said 
It's, it's very short. Love has been abolished in the name of health, then health will be abolished. Yeah. Freedom has been abolished in the name of medicine, then medicine will be abolished. Mm -hmm. God has been abolished in the name of reason, then reason will be yes. abolished. And it's, it's quite beautiful. Yeah. It goes on. But I, I think it's it raises up the issues that are very center for humans that we pretend to be away from because of our hyper-technological lives. Yeah. But the government has almost profited by the fact that we are hooked into the internet. Like another question is, would we have been relegated to lockdown without the internet? I don't think so. Because um, then the government would be worried about uprisings. Yes, <laughs> yes absolutely. I, mean, I suppose, God, we could go on and on about this forever and talk forever. But I suppose... What I'm also disabused of is the idea that, you know, the, the, the liberal ideal that, that what happens is that the people um, elected representatives, so, so liberal democracy is about the will of the people in action. Um, I think that's probably an ideal which would, could never be realized, that there, there is a way in which as you know we're not if society could cohere around individuals all pulling in different ways it wouldn't be society so in some way we have to we have to have um a sense of um shared belonging we have to have a sense of shared values in order for us to be governed otherwise we are ungovernable so the governing us in ways that are not apparent is part of liberal government, I think. I think that is, gosh, I should have never started on this. This is almost the responsibility or the inevitable responsibility of a liberal government would be to, to not necessarily be transparent about all the ways in which we are governed. Having said that, what we need to do, it, we need, we could be grown up. We can understand that that is, that is necessary. And we can also be vigilant about the overreach of that. We're not being vigilant about the overreach. It is being that responsibility to, to uh, keep control of a potentially um, dangerous situation in which society falls apart is, 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 is now so authoritarian and so directive of a particular society that apparently is wanted now. And it's why is this society wanted? Why is, why are we being pulled into this direction? So then I want to know where is the money? Who is involved in this? Who gets to benefit from this and who doesn't? And what are the consequences for the ordinary person? Well, I'm very concerned about bare life being reduced now mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to econom economics and who's needed and who's not. I mean, the language is almost eugenical and the governments don't even realize they're using it or are they realizing it? You know, yeah, I can't second guess governments, yeah. but we've been, we've been taught in this year to refer to ourselves, to think of ourselves in our utility to the wealthy without actually saying that, mm -hmm. you know, in Italy, 
uh, Pierelli had the fa factories opening open all the time, apparently. There were some of the factories open, some were closed, but it comes down to the wealth need to be paid. The wealthy need to be paid, they need their money, and nobody's taken into considerations, uh, into consideration, I'm sorry, the interests of the most vulnerable, because the most vulnerable are not only those vulnerable to the virus, the most vulnerable are not them. The most vulnerable are the poor. And we're seeing, you know, the numbers in India, we're seeing numbers in many developing countries far better than what they are in the West. Yeah. Um, but these people's lives, especially, you know, in developing countries, they will be first affected economically. We're already seeing starvation in parts of the world because these economies are many degrees separated from our own, but they are dependent upon ours. Yeah. And we can't think of economies as somehow confined by national borders when most of us are working online, you mm -hmm. know? So I, I really worry about the way this has taught us all to dehumanize ourselves mm -hmm. in this fake notion of everything goes in quotes and I'm about to say the greater good when we're actually talking about the elite yeah. of the elite. So when uh, in the piece yeah. I'm about to put up today, you know, I was analyzing the Guardian's coverage of poor people and renters under the virus. Mm -hmm. The only way that they could actually, and the New York Times also, the only way the New York Times are, uh, could, could come around to discussing renters' rights was to conflate them with the poor homeowners who are, maybe they only have an extra house, not two, you know? And I'm thinking, oh my God, they've just dehumanized mm -hmm. the most vulnerable people in the world, renters, with people who have an extra house to spare, to rent. Yeah. Can you believe mm -hmm. that sleight of hand? Mm -hmm. It was really shocking to me to see that this entire year, the media, more than the government, has been invested in smashing down any kind of class difference. Mm -hmm. And this was the time to not exacerbate it or, or to exaggerate it, but to note it and to let those people speak. So you look at The Guardian or its Italian version, La, La Repubblica, and you will see one story after the other about 20 things you can do with your kids during lockdown. Yeah. And I'm thinking, oh my God, how about like 20 drugs mothers need to take in order to do any of those 20 things? Yeah. Because lockdown was hell on people, especially people who don't have external help or family. And that will come down to the middle and lower middle and lower classes. Because even if you're middle class, being stuck at home with four kids, yeah. having to do everything while you're trying to do your full-time job yeah. through Zoom or whatever, it's no picnic. Yeah. And we have been taught to objectify ourselves through the fake narrative uh, bracketing here. I saw Brazil. I don't know if you ever saw Terry Gilliam's Brazil. I highly recommend everyone see it because it almost foresees today without the disease element. But, you know, there's this, all these scenes throughout the movie where it's repeated, you know, um, instead of see something, say something, which was the motto post 9-11 in case you see a rucksack in New York subway and it's abandoned so it could be a bomb. It's we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what came out of Johnson's government. It's exactly what came out of most neoliberal governments. We're all in this together. Then we had Wonder Woman, you know, that Israeli actress sing at us, you know, and I was just like, make it stop. Because 
This is where you began to see where Hello Magazine no longer mattered. People don't want Glau Gadot singing at them. Mm -hmm. They want they want to go outside mm -hmm. with their dog or mm -hmm. to take a run mm -hmm. and not have to double check. Mm -hmm. And we were taught that we are biological beings as if we hadn't known that mm -hmm. and that our care of everyone else depends upon us denying our freedom. Mm -hmm. And people have internalized this, this, this to such a degree. I had someone come on my wall in April and say, hey, but last month you were singing a different tune. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, yes, at the end of February, beginning of, of March, I actually was very concerned. I was flipped out. Now we have science and more knowledge. And I can say that this was unnecessary. And if anything should be criticized here, uh, I do think we need to have a discussion as to why China took time to do certain measures and to make certain announcements. But why did Western countries, all countries, just not shut down airports, for mm -hmm. instance? Why couldn't that have been something that happened for two weeks mm -hmm. until situations were studied, virus were under more scrutiny, more people could look at it, more conclusions could be drawn. No, we were put into prison. And, and I think as time moves forward, Heather, there'll be many people, including our children's children, who will look back and say, oh, that was the year people lost their minds. Yeah. I hope they that. I hope they think that. Well, Heather, what is your what is your number one hope for 2021? For me personally, I feel that this year has been um, added on to the stresses of this year have been added on to the stresses of the previous two years. So for about three years, I've gone through the most intense learning experience, actually, um, about how things actually work about how we're actually being governed about the way that people respond it's all the things that we've talked about i won't rehearse them all over again but it has been um um quite painful in many ways um then that's so the next year i feel like god I, you know unless something else happens god knows but um i i sort of think do you know what i've learned so much now i don't keep to need, I don't need to keep on learning this stuff. I wanna, I wanna um, think, I was going to swear there, I possibly shouldn't. Um, I want to think, I'm going to rest in terms of I, this fight that I feel as if I've been in a fight to, or, or I've been, you know, like, like the person that's waving, that's in the sea waving saying, I'm not, I'm, I'm not waving at you, I'm, I'm drowning. This is a really serious situation, <laughs> take notice of it. So I feel as if I've been red alert in that way with the trans thing and, and now with this um, of red alert. And I don't want to sustain that any longer. I, I really am going to, I think I can sustain it, but I think that I want to choose to, to do um, not something different because I, once I've seen what is happening, I can't unsee it. So I'm inevitably compelled to be in this um, fight, as it were, the fight to speak and to be honest and truthful as much as I can be. Um, but it's just an internal decision that I'm trying to make it not be quite so sore and raw 
I don't need to keep on doing that, I hope. And I think that things are changing. I, with, for example, with the transgender thing, I mean, where at one point I was l literally having my mouth shut. Um, I think people are, you know, taking the bat on and running with it themselves. And lots of people are becoming aware now in ways that they weren't aware. And the Kira Bell case has been so transformative. Um, and so, you know, it's quite possible now to talk to uh, an ordinary person. I don't mean that in a derogatory way. A, an ordinary person in the street, as it were, and and um, they will hear that there might be something wrong with um, um, medicalizing children through cross sex hormones and um, puberty blockers in ways that the ordinary person was beginning to not be able to even hear that um, because they believed that it was it was it was um, a helpful thing for children. So so the Kira Bell case has changed that. And I think that will gather its own momentum. So I'm very pleased about that. Very pleased about it. So I, I think I've joined my own personal uh, hopes and my hopes for society in, in, in the two there. But, but um, I think I'm basically um, somebody who will be, is a political person, as it were. I, I can't separate out the personal from the political. So the two are inevitably joined as far as I'm concerned. <laughs>